Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And good evening and welcome to the Shi'ur. We are continuing the story of Eliezer going to find a wife for Yitzchak. In fact, he's more or less found her. Um, and he's now telling the story to her parents and brother about how he found her. And we're up to Perak Kafdalad Pasuk Mem Vav. And Perak Kafdalad Pasuk Mem Vav says, this is still his recounting of the story. Uh, having asked her to uh, give him a drink, she hurried the Tored Kada Me'aleha, and she lowered the jug from on her, the Tome, and she said, Shte, drink, Begam Gamalecha Eshka, and I will also water your camels, the Esht, and I, uh, I will water them, the Gam Hagamalim, and sorry, and I drank, the Gam Hagamalim, Hishkata, and she also watered the camels. And there is no Rashi on that one, so we'll go straight on to Pasuk Memzaim, where Eliezer continues his recounting of the story, and he says, And I asked her, and I said, But me at, whose daughter are you? And she said, But Betuel ben Nachor, and the daughter of Betuel, who's the son of Nachor, Asher Yalda Lo Milka, whom Milka bore to him. And I put the nose ring on her nose, and the bracelets on her hands. And Rashi has something to say here, uh, because if we look at Pasuk Kafbet, we find that it's not quite how it happened. So we go back to Kafbet, where it says, When the uh, camels finished drinking, And the man took a golden nose ring, weighing a becker, and two bracelets, and their weight was 10 gold pieces. And then, and then he said, whose daughter are you? So now, as I've said before, Rashi does not comment on every minor deviation between the original narrative and the recount, of which there are many, and different words are used. And Rashi doesn't say that's significant, and it, and it isn't significant, because when somebody's retelling a story, they're not I'm going to say exactly what happened, exactly to the letter. However, here we have something which is like a prima facie change. The order has changed. In the original, he gave her the jewellery, and then he said, whose daughter are you? And now it's the other way round. So Rashi has something to say on that. And he says in Pasuk Memzayan, on the words, asim, I asked and I put, Rashi selects those two words uh, as his divremakshal, as his opening words, to make it clear it's those two things that he's referring to when he says, Shina Haseda. He changed the order. Shaharei hu techila natan, because he first of all gave, ba'achakach sha'al, and then he asked. Eila, but shalo yit pasuhu bidavrav, so they should not grasp his words and then catch him out with his words, the Yomru, and they should not say, that's uh, Rivka's family, hech natata. Uh, la, how did you, why, or how did you give these jewelry to her? And you didn't yet know who she was. So, says Rashi, we have a major discrepancy, like a, a substantive discrepancy between the narrative and the recount. And Rashi has to explain it. 
And Rashi explains that he did it in order that they should not say, that Rivka's family should not say, hang on, something's funny here. You, you've said, remember, we've point, talked about this before. Abraham basically gave two conditions, that she should be fitting for Yitzchak and she should be from Abraham's family, at least ideally. At least, first of all, Eliezer should go and visit Abraham's family and find out if there is someone whom he can, uh, uh, if there's a, a suitable wife there. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. Well, we have the original band here because it was Talia and Sarah all those years ago who asked me a question on Rashi. And here we are many podcast episodes later. And we are on Perak Kaftalat, Pasuk Mem Zion. Okay. So we're talking about the change of the order between what happened in the original case when Eliezer gave the jury and then asked, whose daughter are you? And how he retells the story in the other way around. So Rashi has to give a reason why that is so. Um, and Rashi says, so that the Rivka's family shouldn't say, how did you give her the jewelry? And you didn't yet know who she is. So as I was just saying, that there's these two criteria that Abraham set. Number one, that the girl should be fitting. And number two, that ideally she should be from his family. And when Eliezer saw that she was so kind and so full of chesed and she wore all the camels, he knew that Hashem had directed him to the right girl. And he knew that checking that she was from the right family would be a formality because Hashem had already proved that she's the right girl. But he doesn't want to say that to um, Rivka's family. Now, why doesn't he want to say that to Rivka's family? So Rashi gives part of the answer. So they shouldn't ask, why did you give the jewelry when you didn't know who she was? So one answer is they, uh, Eliezer didn't rely on a Siman. Eliezer wasn't uh, using divining. He wasn't um, uh, sort of like a, some sort of mysterious sign from heaven that this is the right girl. It was a test of character. And had he said to Rivka's family that the test of character was enough, they might have thought that it's some sort of divination. They might not have understood but it was a test of character. They might have thought it was something else uh, if it made him so certain. Uh, another suggestion is had he said that, uh, had he told them the truth and that the sign proved beyond all doubt she was the right girl, then as I said last week, that puts much more bargaining power in their hands. If he is saying, if he were to say to them, she fed the camels and after that there was no doubt whatsoever she's the right girl, it's absolutely clear, then they could just raise the price. So he doesn't want them to do that. Um, it's also worth asking, is he actually lying? Now, I think reading the Rashi, Rashi really doesn't leave much option, but to say he changed the order, he did it differently. But if you look in, there is something that we can say that perhaps gets him a little bit off the hook. If you look carefully at Pastor Amzai, the Eshalota, I asked her, the Omar, and I said, Bat Miat, the Asim Hanezem Alapa. So, answer possibly number one. He doesn't use the word then. He doesn't make it entirely chronological. You could read it as saying, I did two things. I asked her who she was and I gave her jewelry. And I'm not gonna tell you which order I did that. So he's not explicitly saying the order. The other thing is, if you look very carefully, in Pasuk Kaf Bet, it says, The man took, a gold, uh, he took the various jewelry and he took the jewelry and then it says and two bracelets on her hands. What doesn't it say that it said in Memzayim? He said he doesn't say he gave them to her. So you could say that what actually happened was he took the jewelry, asked her whose daughter she is, and then put the jewelry on her. 
It's a bit of a stretch, but it is significant. And this is the sort of thing we'll look for, especially we spent all this time studying Rashi, that the verb in Kafet is Vayikach, and the verb in Mem Zayin is uh, Asim, and it's a different verb. Now, again, we said that the word between the original and the recount, um, the words change, but this is perhaps a significant change and perhaps could explain that in reality, he didn't actually give the jury until he'd asked her who she was, but he'd taken it by your cuff. He took it ready to give and then he gave it to her. Now, I don't think actually either of those fit with Rashi because Rashi says very clearly, Shina Haseda, he changed the order and Rashi uses the verb Tehila Natan so he does say making clear that the order is significant and he uh, doesn't Rashi doesn't refer back to the verb or the verb he just says he adds his own word which sort of covers both and avoids a possible way of explaining there's a difference between one and the other okay I think that covers um, Mem Zion and we go on to Mem Chet uh, continues his story the Hashem I bow down and prostrated to Hashem, et Hashem, and I blessed Hashem, Elokei Adoni Abraham, the God of my master Abraham, Asher, in Chani Bederech Emet, who has led me in the way of truth, Lakachet et Bat Achi Adoni Livno, to take the daughter of the brother of my master, actually the granddaughter, um, for his son. And there is no Rashi on that. And now he comes to the end of his story and he puts his cards on the table in Pasuk Memtet and he says, if you are going to do kindness and truth at Adoni with my master, tell me the imlo, and if not, tell me the al-yamin or al-small, and I will turn to the right or to the left. So the first part of the passage means if you're going to agree for Rivka to go with me to be Yitzchak's wife, tell me, and the implication is and we'll go. And if not, that's okay, I will go to the right or the left. So Rashi wants to tell us what does it mean right or left? And I think uh, it's one of those simple answers to why Rashi has to say something, because it's not a natural turn of phrase. What does it mean to go to the right or left? He's sitting in Haran. Does it mean he's going to go that way? Does it mean he's going to go that way? Rashi says, Al-Yamin means Bimunot Yishmael. Al-Yamin means I'll go to the daughters of Yishmael to find a wife there, or Al-Small, I'll go to the left Maybe not Lot, from the daughters of Lot. Shahaya Yoshev Lismol Shal Abraham. Because Lot was dwelling to the left of Abraham. So let's work out a bit of geography. Why does left and right mean, uh, respectively, well, right and left means Yishmol and um, Lot. Lot. So where was Lot living? Where was Lot living? So Lot was living, funny enough, we haven't heard much about Lot. And by the way, we've heard about his daughters, and I don't think, given their history, they'd be the greatest catch for Yitzchak. And it's easy to say maybe he had other daughters, but apparently he didn't, because only he and his two daughters came out of Saddam. So it's a bit strange that the daughters would even be suggested, but maybe there's a way, maybe they did Shuva. Um, uh, Yishmael is also an interesting case, because Yishmael has been rejected, he's been pushed aside. Although uh, we know that when Abraham died, Yitzchak and Yishmael buried him in that order. And Rashi says there, this shows that Yishmael did tshuva. It's also the case there are Midrashim, which Rashi doesn't bring, that Yishmael and Abraham were sort of reconciled before that. And there, there was interaction between them. The, the Midrash talks about Yishmael, Abraham going to Yishmael's tent and um, leaving sort of a coded message, whether he had a good wife or in the first time he did 
didn't really went back again. Turned out he had a good wife the second time. We also know that Ishmael, according to Rashi, was there at the Akeda. So there's some sort of contact with Ishmael, and Ishmael is certainly not such a bad guy, certainly not of Aesop type quality in the next generation. Anyway, back to the geography. So um, Lot is living somewhere near Saddam. Where is Avram living? Somewhere south of Saddam. He's moved to the south. When he went to the Plishtim, he's moved to the, yeah, he's going to right, that's before this time. He's moved to the south. So if he's in the south, Saddam's in the north. So which direction do we always face in order to define lefts and rights? We always face east. We learned that from the last week's Sedra about the Mishkan. The east is always the way you're facing. So if Abraham faces east, then the south is on his right. So Lot is in the small. Sorry, sorry, Lot is in the north. Uh, Lot is the, yeah, yeah, Lot is the small. So the left is pointing north. If you're facing east, left points north. Have I got that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Good. And um, if Yishmael is in the vicinity of Abraham, as those midrashim and the little hints in Rashi suggest, then Yishmael is in the south. Uh, if he's a little bit further south than Abraham, then he's on the right. Okay. Now that explains the geography. What it doesn't explain is what happened in Pasuk Chet. So we have to go back to Pasuk Chet. Says Abraham, after Eliezer says, what happens if the woman I find doesn't want to come back to Canaan, wants to stay in Haran? Abraham says, If the woman doesn't want to go after you, you will be clean, you'll be exempt from my Shavua, this, this oath, but on no account take my son over there. And Rashi there says, um, yeah, etc. So Avraham says, if the first choice doesn't work, then you're free to take a wife from my mates, my three mates, Ena, Eshkol, and Mamre, who are Hittites, by the way. Um, and now Eliezer says, if plan A doesn't work, I'll take a wife either from the daughters of Ishmael or the daughters of Lot. So how do we explain this discrepancy? And, and it's hard. So either Eliezer sort of surmises that given that these two are family members of Abraham, albeit a little bit sort of disconnected, a bit estranged, nevertheless, they're family of Abraham. Maybe Eliezer sort of works out for himself that when Abraham said, um, that was plan, not plan B, but plan C. But there was a sort of middle level that Eliezer sort of got as a hint that if you can't go to my family, the children of Nahor in Haran, then at least go to some other family member before you go to the three friends who are not family members at all. Possibility one. Possibility two, Eliezer is saying something not true. Um, well, he's done that in the previous classic, so perhaps he's on a roll here and he can do it again. Why would he do that? Um, to stress to Rivka's family that he's got other options which still tick the family box. Because again, they, they know that he needs to find a wife from Abraham's family, so they think they hold all the cards. But if Eliezer points out there are other family branches, albeit a little bit distant, that he could go to, they will realize that they don't hold all the cards and they haven't got such a strong bargaining position. Let's move on to Pasuk Nun. I'm very excited by the Russian coming up. Very excited. Okay. Uh, Pasuk Nun says, Vayan Lavan Ubatuel. Lavan and Batuel answered, and they said, 
May Hashem Yatsa Hadava. From Hashem, this thing has come. Lo Nuchal Daber Elecha Ra Oto. We are not able to speak to you bad or good. Okay, so there's a lot to say, uh, but we'll start particularly on the first line of Rashi. Rashi says on the words, Vayan Lavanubatua, Russia Haya. He was a Russia, the Kafats, and he jumped in, Lahashiv Lifnei Aviv, to answer before his father. So, first of all, how does Rashi know that? Uh, well, the simple shot is it says Lavan followed by the Torah. But there's another clue as well. And maybe this actually is what Rashi is uh, led by the uh, plurality, or otherwise, of the verb Vayan. It's singular. What happens when we have a singular verb followed by a pair of subjects? Moshe Okay, that's the example I always give because it's so clear and it comes many times. Moshe What's going on there? Moshe and Aaron came. It should be plural. It should be above. Why is it Because one is clearly the primary and the other is secondary. So Bayan, Lava and in the singular means one is primary. One is taking the initiative and the other is secondary. And I think I think perhaps the fact that the second verb, Vayomru, is in the plural, doesn't uh, take away from my thesis, actually adds to it. It's the contrast between Vayan, singular, and Vayomru, which means Rashi has to say something to explain Vayan. Now, let's talk about this particular characteristic. So Rashi, uh, having said that he needs to explain, I think, the singularity of Vayan, nevertheless, he's telling us something about Lavan's character that Lavan is not respectful to his father. Um, at this point, uh, have a look at Perak Kafket Pasuk Hay. The story is um, a generation later, uh, I make it over 90 years later actually, Yaakov arrives in Haran, having run away from Esau, and he meets some shepherds. And he says, Do you know Lavan, the son of Nachor? And they said, Yadanu, we know him. What's wrong? He's actually the son of Betuel. Yaakov's got the family tree all mixed up. He's not calling him Lavan, son of Betuel, his father. He's called him Lavan, son of Nachor, his grandfather. Now, what is interesting is Lavan is never, except once, called Ben Betuel. He is sometimes called Ben Nachor. He's sometimes called Lavan Stam or Lavan Ha'arami. There's only one place where he's called Ben Betuel, and that is Perik Hafchet Pasuk A. At the end of Parshat Toldot, Vayishlach Yitzhak et Yaakov, Vayelipadan Aram, El Lavan Ben Betuel Ha'arami. But who's, who's giving him that designation? Yitzchak. Yitzchak, and it doesn't say Yitzchak said it, but it's Yitzchak sent. So when, in reference to, when Yitzchak's in charge, Yitzchak knows that Lavan is Lavan Ben Betuel. But in all other respects, Lavan is never Ben Betuel. Let me give you another interesting example. Herak Lamad Aleph Pasuk Yudalad. So towards the end of the encounter between Lavan and uh, Yaakov, Yaakov says to his wives, Lavan's daughters, we've got to go. And he, interestingly, he sort of, he needs to ask their permission. And he needs to sort of plead with them and make his case. 
And he's successful because in Pasuk, in Lamet Aleph Yud Dalet, V'tan Rachel V'leah V'tomarna Lo Ha'od Lanu Chelek V'nachalab V'etavinu Halo Nochriot Nechshavnu Lo Do we have, they're totally in agreement with Yaakov's plan to run away. Do we have any portion and inheritance in the house of our father? We are strangers considered by him. Why does Lavan jump in front of his father? as Rashi highlights, because Lavan doesn't believe in family connections. He doesn't see himself as a son. He doesn't see himself as a father. That's why he's never known as Lavan member to well, because that's not his identity. He is not Lavan, the son of his father. He doesn't care who he's the son of. Most of the time he's Lavan, nothing. He raises daughters, whom we know he uses as pawns to entrap Yaakov, the daughters see through it. The daughters say he doesn't consider us like daughters. He doesn't respect that family bond. We could go further. That his whole time with Yaakov is directed to stopping Yaakov going home. He says, you've got to stay for seven years. And then he said, you've got to stay for another seven years. And then when Yaakov says, I want to go, he says, please stay longer. And he stays for another six years until Yaakov finally runs away. Why, where is Yaakov trying to get to? And where is love and stopping him getting to? He's trying to get back to his parents. Yaakov is Ben Yitzchak. And, he's, and he finally does get back to Ben Yitzchak. It takes a little while to get home, but he does get back to Yitzchak. Unfortunately, he doesn't get back to Rivka because she's already died. So Lavan, who respects no parentage, is trying to stop Yaakov get back to his parents. He's trying to make Yaakov as, as rootless um, as is Lavan himself. So Lavan, as Rashi points out, rejects the connection to his father, the particular characteristic that Rashi mentions, Rashi goes out of his way to mention, is this disrespect that Lavan has for his father, and that characterizes Lavan. And in fact, I would go one stage further to what I think is one of the scariest pasukim in the Torah, is Perik Lamadala Pasuk Mem Gimel. Because there's one more target, if you like, of Lavan's lack of respect for parenthood. So his final parting shot, when he realizes that Yaakov's going to go, he says, Perik Lamad Aleph Pasuk Mem Gimel, Bayan Lavan, Bayome El Yaakov, Habanot Banotai, Bahabanim Banai. The daughters are my daughters, the sons are my sons. Yaakov, throughout the whole parish of Ayatza, in fact, around his life, and there are many, many indications of this, has one particular dream, one particular vision to establish a family, to build a Jewish home. There's many, many examples how Yaakov is, is uh, the idea of a bayit is what Yaakov is, is trying to achieve. And in practical terms, he wants to get married, he wants to have children, he wants to build a family. And Rashi makes the point, I, I make, every year I mean to count, I think it's about four or five times that Yaakov is very concerned that each one of his family turn out kosher. Each one of his family follows the Jewish way, if you like, unlike his father, unlike his grandfather, who weren't blessed with all their children doing that. So Yaakov is... The one, we are the B'nai Israel because Yaakov succeeds in building the first Jewish family. And we are the B'nai Israel. He made it. We are his children. But what, look what Lavan tries to say. Your daughters, they're my daughters. Your sons, they're my sons. They're not yours. They're cosmopolitan. They're citizens of Haram. They're citizens of the world. I do not respect that they belong to you. And that's Lavan again. His lack of respect for family connections. Just by the way, this isn't about Lavan but uh, I think it uh, fits in the story, is Yaakov has the same sort of accusation or, or same sort of questioning from 
Asov when Asov meets up with him all those years later. And in Perak Lamad Gimel, Pasuk Hay, Asov sees all his family. He lifted up his eyes. He sees the wise. And the children. Who are these to you? In other words, what's your connection? They look like, like anybody. They look like citizens of the world. And Yaakov answers, and I love this passage. They are the children whom God has favored your servant. They are literally, I know every Jewish parent says this, they are literally a gift from God. And Yaakov recognized they're a gift from God. They're a gift from God to me. They're my children and I work after them. And that is Yaakov, and that is the antithesis of Lavan. And I would suggest that Rashi heralds that with his comment on Nun. So yes, of course, Rashi's answering a textual problem. He's always answering a textual problem. But I think it's very significant that Rashi feels it's worth pointing out that he's a Russia. And the, the, the manifestation of his rishas, of his evil, is that he interrupts his father. He does not show appropriate respect for his father. Now, did anybody else speak in front of their father? Yes, turn to Lama Dalad Yud Gimel. In the Dina story, so Dina is captured, kidnapped, raped, treated terribly by Shechem, and the Hamor, the father of Shechem, and Shechem come to Yaakov's family and Yaakov's sons, and they say, let's do a deal. And in Pasuk Yud Gimel, the Ya'anu B'nei Yaakov et Shechem be'et Hamor. Uh, Aviv, sorry. The sons of Yaakov answered Shechem and Hamor. They're also speaking in front of their father. Are they also to be criticized? Obviously not. Well, Rashi doesn't criticize them. What's the difference? So there are two differences. Number one, Yaakov is, is keeping Shtum at this point. It's not that he's about to say something and they interrupt. Whereas with Lavan, it's quite clearly, it's explicitly, Bayan, Lavan, Ubatuel. So Lavan and Ubatuel is trying to get, his, get a word in, but Lavan comes first. It's also the case that, as we read on in the story of Dina, the brothers had a different view from Yaakov. At the end of the story, it's not quite clear exactly what they're dis discussing, but Yaakov says, you've done a bad thing when you went to attack Shechem. You've made me look bad. And it, perhaps Yaakov didn't believe in fighting Shechem. That's a bit hard to say, because he was also affronted by the terrible things that happened. But he doesn't seem to be of the same mind as his sons. And they respond, Hakazona uh, um, So it's legitimate for their sons to have a discussion with their father, to take a different point of view. We're not saying that children always have to agree with their father. They don't contradict them in public, but they, um, they can take a different point of view. But here, with Laban and Batur, they're saying the same thing. They're the two subjects of the verb. So they're saying the same thing. So there was absolutely no reason for Laban to get in first. But he did. Okay, that is what I wanted to say on the first part of Rashi. Then Rashi's got something to say on Lo Nuchal Daber Elecha. So let's go back and look at the Pasuk. The thing has come from Hashem. Lo Nuchal Daber Elecha Ra Oto. We are not able to say anything to you, bad or good. Just by the way, um, look at Lamad Aleph Kaf Dalad. So just before Lavan says farewell to Yaakov, 
Hashem appears to him. Hashem came to Laban Ha'arami, which is how he's normally described, in a dream of the night and said to him, take care, paint the bear in Yaakov, mitov adra. Don't say anything to Yaakov, neither good nor bad. And there's just echoes of that here, where Yaakov, sorry, Laban and Betuel say, we can't say anything good or bad. And by the way, just one more thing. This isn't Rashi, but I think I mentioned this before. Lavan is this master of using language to say things that people want to hear without actually saying what they actually think he's saying. What doesn't Lavan and Betuel say at this point? They don't say yes. They say it's from Hashem. We can't say anything about it, but they don't actually say yes. And they're actually opening, they're setting up the ground for in Tupac in time to say actually no or not yet or let's let's wait. Okay, what does Rashi have to say? Lo nuchal daber elacha l'ma'ein b'davar to refuse the thing hazer this thing. Lo aliyadei teshuvat davar ra for lo aliyadei teshuvat davar hagon. Not by an answer of something bad and not by an answer of something fitting. Lefisha nikar because it is recognized shemei Hashem yatsa hadavad that from Hashem the thing has come. I will pause before the last bit. Rashi is saying he adds a particular word after lo nuchal daber elacha lemaein to refuse. We are the actual shot of the pasuk is we can't say anything bad or good, and what Rashi does is say we can't prevent this happening by a good reason or a bad reason or a good reason. What would be a bad reason? A bad reason would be to say, what a chutzpah you and your master Abraham have coming here, go away. That would be a teshuvah ra in Rashi's words. What would be a good teshuvah? To say, listen, she's only little, according to Rashi, she's only three. Let's wait a while, which is indeed what they do say in a moment. So Rashi says, the options are, when it says we can't say anything ra or tov, it means we can't try and negate it bad and we can't try and negate it but in a good way now why does rashi say that why doesn't rashi say the simple shot is we can't say anything bad or good we can't disagree with it or we can't agree with it and the answer is because they're not saying we disagree they're not saying no they they're they're no as uh, i keep saying they're about to say no what is they're about to say let's delay let's slow down but they don't say no um and in fact they basically say yes in positive nun aleph now, as it happens, they, they go back on it a little bit, but they say, So they basically are saying yes. So what does it mean to say, We can't say anything bad or good. It can't mean we can't say against it or we can't say it for it, because they are saying it for it. So that's why Rashi reinterprets these words. And he says, we can't say anything, and then Rashi adds, against it in a bad way or in a good way. So Rabatov, which we might have thought means no or yes, Rashi says it can't mean we can't say no or yes, because they do actually say yes. So what can't they say? They can't say no. So what's Ra and Tov? No in a bad way or no in a good way. That's what Rashi says. And then in the last four words of Rashi, there's a little bit of a sting in the tail. So Hashem uh, because it's recognized that the thing comes from Hashem. And then he says, according to your words, that she appeared to you. She was appeared to you. I, literally, she was prepared for you. I, she met you 
at the right moment and she fed the camels for you. But now you could read this in an innocent way as saying, how do we know that it came from Hashem? Because what you've just told us. But I would suggest and others suggest that Rashi's saying there's a little bit of negativity here. We accept that it came from Hashem as far as you say. That's what you say. I couldn't possibly comment. You might say that, but I couldn't comment. So it, it and I think Rashi is doing this, A, because he wants to paint Love and Ambatur as bad people, because in Rashi's uh, perspective, they are bad people. And B, so I keep saying this, because in a minute, they're going to say, maybe let's slow down. They, they are giving themselves an opportunity to hold the project back. But we will go on to Pasuk Nun Aleph. So they have said, love number 12 said in that order, we can't say anything bad or good, which Rashi has explained, we're not going to say no, which means they are going to say yes. And indeed they do say yes here in Nun Aleph. In a Rivka Lepanecha, behold Rivka is before you, kach veleich, take and go, utahi isha leven adonecha, and let her be a wife to the son of your master, ka'asher diber Hashem, as Hashem has said. No Rashi, nun bet. Vayahi ka'asher shama evet Abraham et divrehem, vayishtachu arza la Hashem. And it was when the servant of Abraham heard their words, he bowed to the ground to Hashem. Says Rashi, vayishtachu arza mikan shemodim al basura tova. From here we learn that you give thanks for good news. Why is the Torah telling us that he bowed down? Because he's heard good news. So uh, the Torah, Rashi says, the reason the Torah is putting this in is for us to learn something and to learn that you give thanks for good news. Now, what is very interesting is that the Midrash, which Rashi is quoting, I think the Midrash Rabbah, applies this point to Pasuk Kaf Vav. In Pasuk Kaf Vav, um, when Eliezer meets Rivka and she waters the camels, da da da, and Russia said miracles happen, the water came up to her, and then she says, You can stay in our house, and everything is absolutely wonderful. The man bowed down and prostrated to Hashem. And the Midrash there says, From here we learn that you give thanks, Al Basura for good news. And Rashi doesn't bring that comment on Kafbav, he brings it on Nunbet. There are two ways to explain this. One, the boring way, is to say Rashi had a different girsa. Rashi had a different version than we have in the Midrash. And in Rashi's book, it was written uh, as a comment on Pasuk Nun Bet. Possible, because uh, there were uh, different girsaot, there were different uh, textual variants going around. But what I think is a better answer, and is, I think, much more probable, is Rashi does here what Rashi does sometimes. Let me just give a, a sentence of introduction. I've probably said this before. Rashi is not very original on one level. That uh, I once heard the figure, I have no idea how you calculate it, 80% of the words of Rashi come from the Midrash. But Rashi's brilliance is his power of selection for, in, in three particular ways. Nacham Levitz has a whole essay on this, what I'm quoting now. No, and she gives examples of all three. Number one, he will change the words of a Midrash. Uh, in order to make it fit the Peshat, in order to make it serve its purpose of explaining the Peshat and the Pasuk better than the original Midrash does. Number two, 
uh, obviously his power of selection. When we talk about the Midrash, that's such a misnomer. I realize I've just been doing it, but it's a misnomer. There are lots and lots of Midrashim. That's why I'm really not a fan of the book the Midrash says, because it takes away all this idea. And I'm even less of a fan of the little Midrash says, because it pervades little children with this mistaken idea of what Midrashim are. Anyway, there are lots and lots of Midrashim. There's the Midrash Rabbah, there's the Midrash Tanakhumah, and there, those are the big two, but there are many others. And Rashi quotes many. And uh, if you look at the Rav Kasha's Torah Shalema, where he collates every Midrashic comment on every passage, which is like this huge work, and it's absolutely fantastic, by the way, it's very, very clear that Rashi dips his toe into the world of Midrash and selects a little bit here and selects a little bit there. If it fits the Pshat, or if it explains the Pshat, he selects it. And if it doesn't, he doesn't select it. And the third thing he does is this, that sometimes the Midrash will make a comment on Kafab, and Rashi will say, you know what? That Midrash, I like it, but it fits better on Pasuk Bet. It doesn't fit so well on Pasuk Kafa. So Rashi is more precise than the authors of the Midrash. That's right, because they've got a different task, if you like. They've got a different mission. Um, but we can see the fact that Rashi does that is he doesn't just um, slavishly copy down Midrashim. He's very, very careful in how he uses and sometimes adapts Midrashim to fit in with what he considers to be the pshat, the simple meaning of the text. So what's wrong with it in Pasuk Kavvav? Why did the man prostrate to Hashem in Pasuk Kavvav? Anyone? Well, the answer is, it could be lots of things. It could be the fact that Rivka has just said she's a daughter of Betuel. And that's really good, because that means like he's, uh, he's uh, found exactly whom he's looking for. It could be the fact that she's got such good midas and she has fed all the camels. It could be the miracles, which Rashi said has happened. The Kvitsat Aderech, that he arrived, he made the whole journey in one day, uh, which is miraculous. And that the water came up to Rivka as she went down to it, which is miraculous. So it's not explicitly the case that he is prostrating because of good news. It could be for other things. However, in Nunbet, why is he prostrating himself? Only one reason, because Lavan and Batul have just said, you can take her and go, and we agree with her being uh, Yitzhak's wife. So clearly, he's bowing down and prostrating himself to Hashem because of good news. So Rashi says that's the explanation for what's going on in Pasuk Nambet, and it's better to fit here than it was to fit with Pasuk Kafa. Then we go on to Pasuk Nun Gimel. Sorry, that was Nambet. The servant brought out vessels of silver and vessels of gold and cloves, and he gave them to Rivka. Which we don't know what it means, and Rashi's going to tell us. He gave to her brother and to her mother. Rashi says, Rashi So, it's pretty much the same word, but it's got a nun added, uh, but it comes from the root of megadim. Now, what are megadim? Megadim are nice things. Um, I think I would probably translate them as sweets, or in Aussie speak, lollies, or nice things. Um, I haven't got a devarim here, but uh, in the bracha to, that Moshe gives to um, Yosef, which is then divided into Ephraim and Asher, um, he says, Mi meget, who do you lane? Uh, Hare Kedem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hare Kedem. yeah, it's the nice things that come from the mountains. 
So Meged means nice things. So Rashi, uh, I'd like to suggest, and I always do this with, with trepidation, but this is a straightforward Rashi in the sense you might not be familiar with the word Migdanot. So Rashi has to tell you it means Megadim, nice things, sweets. Shehevi imo mine peirot shall eretz Yisrael. So it's not sweets because they didn't have sweets in those days because they didn't have sugar, but they had fruits of Eretz Yisrael. He brought with him types of fruits from Eretz Yisrael. So why does Rashi have to say this? Well, he first of all has to tell you what the word Migdanot means because you might not know. And secondly, he has to explain what's going on here. So he's giving basically sort of part of the dowry um, to Rivka. He's giving her clothes and uh, gold and silver. That sort of makes sense. But why is he giving something also to his, uh, her mother and brother? Indeed, if they're the hosts, if he's staying in their house, it's more common, but they would give him things. Why is he giving them things? So Rush explains, and this is a bit of a Zionist shtick, which is very nice, um, that Rashi reminds us that we love Eretz Yisrael, and Eliezer brings the fruits of Eretz Yisrael because they are very nice and they are very precious. Um, it's funny, you know, we think about Eretz Israel and we love Eretz Israel and we, we, we desperately want to be there in these times when, when it's hard to get there. I don't think people often think of the fruits of Eretz Israel being so luscious. Um, you know, when I was young, we all knew about Jaffa oranges, which aren't actually cultivated in Israel anymore, I think. But um, am I right or am I being unfair? We don't naturally think of, ah, the fruits in Eretz Israel are so good. But you know what? We should. And the Avot did. And uh, you also know who sent the Zimrat, the praise of Eretz Israel in the form of fruit? Um, Yaakov. Very good. Yaakov to Yosef, when he didn't know he was, to the ruler of Egypt. He sent a little bit of fruit to like appease him. So he obviously thought that not money, not, not gold, not silver, but a little bit of fruit would be, a little bit of Israeli fruit would be the nice thing to make uh, Yosef nice to them. And here also, Eliezer brings a little bit of Israeli fruit because that will sweeten the deal literally and that will encourage and it will encourage them also to let Rivka go to Israel because if Israel has such nice fruit it's a nice place for her to go to okay mem nun dalad they ate they and they drank he and the men who were with him they spent the night and they got up in the morning and he said Send me to my master. He sort of put himself under the authority of Lavan and Basuel and um, Mrs. Basuel. Um, trying to think who she was. Don't know. Um, no, that was that was that's Nacho's wife. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, because he now says that I can't go until you send me. And then something else happens. But let's look at Rashi on Vayalinu. Kol lina shabamikra linat laila achat. Whenever you have lina in the text, it refers to the staying over of one night, um, which is pretty much what we said um, when Eliezer asked Rivka if he could stay. Thank you. And then she replies uh, at the end of Kafhei, Gam Makom Lalun, 
And Rashi talked about the difference between the two. And Rashi said, Lelin is Lina Achat. Now, he didn't say it's one night. He said it's one act of staying. It wasn't actually clear if it was one night. Well, that's the simple understanding of Lina Achat. And Lalun is uh, an extended period, Kama Linot, many staying overs. So although Rashi didn't say it explicitly, um, he's saying that Lin is one staying over. It sounds like one night. So why does Rashi have to say that again here? Um, that's a good question, actually. And I'm not sure there's a very good answer. The Mizrahi says that what Rashi is saying is this is where we learn the fact from. Because the Pasuk says, Vayalinu, Vayakumu Babokya. Vayalinu, whatever that means. And they got up in the morning. So clearly, Vayalinu means they stayed one night. Otherwise, it'd be like several mornings. Um, and uh, we know from the context, they were in a hurry to go. And Eliezer says, I, I want to go. So Vayalinu makes sense that it's one night. So the Mizrahi says, when Rashi says, Kol lina mikra, lina laila echad, what Rashi means is we learn from this, that whenever you find the word lina in the text, it means a staying of one night. Uh, it's not totally convincing, and other Mephoshim disagree with that Mizrahi, but I haven't seen a better solution. Then we come to Nun Hey. Oh, we're on a roll tonight, aren't we? Vayomer achicha ima. And her brother and mother said, also singular, just notice it's singular, and the brother is put before the mother. Yamim. Let the girl stay with us, Yamim, literally days. Rashi's going to talk about this, or Asor, or Ten, and after that she will go. So we'll talk about the Yamim or Asor, but first of all, Rashi notices there's been a change of personnel. Who was speaking in Pasuk Nun? Who answered Eliezer's questions? Lavan Abatuel. Who's answering Eliezer's questions or who's speaking to Eliezer now? Lavan and Mrs. Batuel. And so Rashi says, Ubatuel, Heichan Haya. Where was Batuel? In the previous Pasuk, he ah. gave gifts. Yeah, I'm a, um, okay, we'll cover that. Well, well spotted. And he says, He, Batuel, wanted to prevent it. And a Malach came and killed him. Uh, okay, it's a few things to say. Um, there's a Midrash that says, when Eliezer sat down to eat, they put poisoned food in front of him. And they said, no, eat. And Eliezer said, no, I'm not going to eat until I've told my story. And the Midrash says, while he was telling the story, a Malach came and swapped the plates. So, um, and then when he finished telling the story, he eats his food, which was the dish that was set for Batuel. And Batuel, it's like in a classic film, and Batuel has got Eliezer's dish. Um, Rashi doesn't go there, because Rashi doesn't need to go there. Rashi doesn't need to tell us about swapping dishes. I also realize there's a big problem with that Midrash. It must have been very slow acting poison. Because after the story, Maybe no, ah, uh, uh, before they ate. Ah, uh, no, no, it works because they eat in Nundalad. Mm -hmm. Lavan speaks in Nun, then they it works very well. I, I take back my comment. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. They eat in Nundalad, and then in Nun he's disappeared. Uh, which also, by the way, it's been a night because this is the following morning. Yes, I, okay, so they eat, then they all go to bed, and Batua doesn't get up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Oh, okay, that's actually better. I sort of had this vision of Eliezer telling his story and Batuel lying there dead, you know, face down in the soup. 
But that's not quite how it happened. But by the following morning, there's no betuah. Anyway, Rashi doesn't give us those details because he doesn't need to. And that's his attitude with Midrash. But what he does need to say is betuah's gone. And it's quite clear. Rashi answers, uh, makes clear what the problem is. In Nun, there's love and a betuah. And in Nun Hay, this important issue is addressed by Lavan and Mrs. Batuel and not Batuel. So Rashi realizes that Batuel has gone. Now, Vicky pointed out a very good question that in Nun Gimel, we've already seen Batuel's absence to some extent because the servant gives um, the sweets, the Migdanot, to Achicha Ule'ima. Why doesn't Rashi say something there? So the answer given is because that's not really decisive. It's not mukhra. It's not obvious that Batu is missing because it may well be that sweets, uh, nice fruit, is something you give to the lady of the household and the young person of the household. You don't necessarily give it to the patriarch. Um, sorry to be very gendered here, but I think we are. Um, so it doesn't force Rashi to say that Batu is missing. Mm -hmm. Batu might not have fancied any of the fruit, uh, but when it comes to discussing Rivka's future, Batuel definitely should be there. So, continues Rashi. Yamim, Shana. Rashi says, when it says days, it means a year. Now, how can we say that days means a year? Well, we can, because in Vayikra, Kafei, Kaftet, Yamim, Tihiyegu'ulato. When you buy a house in a walled city, you've got a year to redeem it. And if you don't redeem it, then you can't buy it back. And not that, well, that Pasuk says Yamim, and the next Pasuk there in Vayikra makes clear that it's talking about a year. So Yamim can refer to a year. So Rashi said, number one, Yamim means a year. Now, why he's sure it means a year and not days, will come to soon. But there's also a precedent for the, the idea of a year. When they said, let her stay for a year, that wasn't like completely out of left field because when a person gets married for the first time, uh, you give her between the request to get married and the chuppah, you give a woman up to a year to prepare her jewelry for herself. Um, in the Mishnah in Ketubat um, and, and other places, we talk about this process that the, uh, the courtship rituals of that time um, were that the uh, gentleman would ask the lady to marry him, and then he would, they would set the date. That would be the Kiddushin or the Erusin, the betrothal, but they'd set the date for the Nisuin, for the actual wedding when she goes under the chuppah and, and it's all completed 12 months later. That's the normal length of time for a Batullah, for somebody who hasn't been married before. For an almana, a widow who hasn't married before, it's less. So, says Rashi, that's what they were based it on. They said, look, we have this idea, they obviously learned the Gemara, that, that uh, you wait 12 months, so let's her wait 12 months. Then they carried on. After saying Yamim, they say, or Asur, or 10. Now, this, Rashi realizes, is odd. They said, days or 10. So Rashi says, what does it mean, Asur? Asara Chadashim, 10 months. And then he says, mamash. If you think it means days, literally. So they said two things, days and 10, literally. So if you think days means days, 
and the smallest number of a plural number of days will be two. So if you think they were asking for just two days or a few days, ein derech hamavak shim levakesh devar mu'at ve'im lo tiretzeh tein lana muruba it's not the way of people when they're bargaining to say, give us something little. And if you don't accept that, then we'll ask for something big. So it makes no sense that they ask for days, presumably two days, followed by asking for 10 days. So that cannot be the Pshat. So what is the Pshat? So then we say the first request must be more than the second request. So Yamim must be more than something that's 10. So then we say Yamim, we find in Vayikra, Perikarpe means a year. We also know that it's normal to give a woman a year to prepare for the wedding. So Yamim means a year. So then what is Asur? So Asur is a little bit less. It's 10 months. It's 10 months. Just by the way, I saw something very cute, which I don't think is Pshat, that the reason you need 12 months is because um, there's a passage in Yisha, I'm not sure where, but Gamara quotes, that says, um, the woman getting married needs 24 items of jewelry. There's a specific itinerary of 24 items of jewelry. So every month she needs to get two items of jewelry over the course of the 12 months. And Eliezer has already given her four items of jewelry. So that's why they could say, okay, she only needs 10 months. So that, that's like sort of cute. Okay. Um, so that's how Rashi knows that it means um, uh, because it's days followed by 10, it must be days meaning a year followed by 10 months. And then, Pasuk Nun Vav, Vayoma Alehem, Alta Achru, don't delay, Oti, me. But Hashem hits Liach Tarki, and Hashem has made successful my way. Shalchuni, the Elchala Adoni, send me, and I will go to my master. Nashna Rashi, Pasuk Nun Zayin, Vayomru, Nikra Lana'ara, Vinishala et Piha. They said, that's Rivka's brother and mother. We will call the girl and we will ask her mouth. Says Rashi, Mikan eta From here, you don't marry a woman except with her agreement. So the fact that they asked her is a source, is perhaps the source for the fact that you don't Betrothed, well, 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 I'll come back to that because that's part of what I want to say next. You don't sometimes marry a woman with her without her agreement. The problem is that you do. That, um, and I know this is somewhat uh, difficult to uh, mention because it, uh, uh, we all recall against this, but a father can marry off his daughter without her permission. Now, the Gemara says that. Um, the rabbis made a rule that said a father can't marry off his daughter without her permission. And here Rashi is saying that So again, the Gemara tells us that the Torah says a father can marry off his daughter without her permission. But Rashi, but there's a rule from the rabbis that say, no, the girl has to agree. Rashi says, from here, from a posuk in the Torah, which has the force of Daraita, or from the Torah itself, that you don't marry a woman without her agreement. Various ways to reconcile this. Number one, we can say, I kept saying that it's Midrabanan, it's from the rabbis that they made this extra takana, this institution that you can't uh, marry, a, uh, you have to get her permission. 
So maybe it's not actually Midravana. Maybe that's actually Midravana, and it's based on this pasuk. So when I said it's Midravana, maybe it's not. Maybe it really is. Or you can say there's a distinction between Kiddushin and Nisuin. And there's a basis for this, which I won't really go into. But there's two stages, I said a moment ago, to the Jewish marriage process. There's Erusin, also known as Kiddushin, which is basically betrothal, when he says to her, you're the one I'm going to marry, and you're marrying to me and nobody else. And he gives her uh, kesef, he gives her money, or he gives the father money if the child is a child, is a minor. Um, and then there's the other stage, which is after a period, maybe 12 months. And nowadays we do it straight away. We do the two things together. But previously there used to be a difference between the Arusian part and the Nisuin part. The Nisuin part is when she literally enters his home, metaphorically does that through the chuppah, the chuppah going under the chuppah is entering his home. And then she becomes his wife in all respects. And when we said before that you can makadesh, you can betroth a girl without her permission, you can't go into the chuppah. Of, the girl can't go to the chuppah without her permission. And that's what Rashi says. Rashi is actually very precise. Mikan she'ein masi'in eta isha. He uses the word for nisuin, for marriage, for wedding, rather than the word kiddushin or erusin for betrothal. So in fact, you could say there's no question. And I've just wasted the last few minutes. Because although a father can makadesh his daughter without her permission, he can't take her to Nisuyan without her permission, which is exactly what Rashi says. But there's one more detail. The father can makadesh his daughter without her permission. What happens if the father's not alive? Then you're in a different dynamic. If the father's not alive, then there's a whole halachic procedure of how a mother and a brother can marry off a minor. But when the brother and the mother marry off the minor, then she's got the right to refuse. Before she reaches adulthood, she can say, thank you very much. I don't want to marry this guy. And she walks out. It's called mion, refusal. It only applies if it's the mother and the brother who married her off, not if the father married her off. So it applies in the case where the father's dead and the mother and the brother marry her off, which is precisely this case. Isn't that clever? Precisely this case. This is a case of non-father marrying off his daughter. But it's the other case of the mother and the daughter marrying off, the mother and the brother marrying off the daughter when the girl has the right to refuse. So that also fits, so that, that could explain what Rashi means here. Although I don't think actually the explanation because Rashi sounds like he's talking generally even when it's the father marrying off the daughter. But it also explains beautifully why now in Pasuk Nun Zion, they say, let's ask Rivka. But in Pasuk Nun Aleph, they didn't. In Pasuk Nun Aleph, they said, They didn't ask Rivka. But now in Nun Zion, they do ask Rivka. Now you can explain by the narrative, because they've, they've suggested this uh, delay process, and they, Eliezer says no, so they're sort of asking Rivka to uh, be the mediator between these two positions. But you don't have to say that. What fits very, very nicely is when Batuel was alive, there was nothing to discuss. Batuel said, She's go take her. But remember, Tor's not alive, then the girl herself has got the right to refuse. So that's why they say, let's ask her. And we will stop there. And Yitz Hashem will meet again next week. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. That was so interesting.